There's nothing new under the sun, and there really isn't. Uh, We have fresh contemporary versions of the same kinds of pressures culturally, spiritually, um, now as they had in the first century. I'm going to be reading to you from the New American Standard uh, this morning, verses 12 uh, through 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold firmly to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, my faithful one who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. And I, but I have a few things against you because you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. So you too have some in the same way who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will wage war against them with the sword of my mouth. The one who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who overcomes... I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's open uh, with a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we, we pray that you would use what we read written here to the Church of Pergamum to instruct us on how to think and live wisely in our own time, in the midst of our own cultural pressures, in the midst of our own sort of political empire uh, that we need to resist and survive and serve as witnesses in the midst of, um, even as we count the cost to that end. And we, uh, we ask you to help us out uh, in this, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Pergamum, uh, as we uh, mentioned uh, last week, each of these cities have... Um, sort of a unique relationship uh, to the Roman Empire, both Smyrna and Pergamum, in some ways a particularly uh, tight one. Uh, Pergamum was the first city there in Asia Minor that uh, took the step 
of actually building a little temple in honor of the emperor. So, you know, it's, it's a little tricky when uh, you read uh, historians as to to what extent they're openly worshiping an emperor and to what extent they're just politically pandering to the pride of the emperor. It's not that they actually may believe that he's a, a, a deity, uh, but they certainly believe that it would be politically expedient to live and talk and uh, publicly uh, go about um, expressing yourself in a way consistent with that. Um, and, and, and we have, we, we have a, a, a similar thing in our own day, right? They, they regularly will warn you when they poll people that a lot of people, they'll, they don't actually tell the pollster what they think. They often tell the pollster what they know they're supposed to think, especially on, on, on matters where the culture, you know, has sensitive people believe this. So do you want to be a sensitive person? And of course, we all want to be sensitive people. And if you have nothing else that, that is shaping your, your value system, but you're just roughly a, a secular person, then what do you tend to do? Well, you tend to do what everybody else is doing, especially after you've watched like 50 programs on television and watched 25 movies and heard it over and over again in songs that this is the new virtuous way to be. Well, that's no doubt a piece of what's going on in the Roman Empire in the first century. How much do they actually believe that Augustus is a god? Well, uh, I don't know, but they, they, they're willing to deal with it publicly such that they might build a temple in their city and everybody will talk as if he is uh, together so that you'll sort of stand out if you don't. Now, some of you, if you, if you regularly listen to uh, Al Mohler on the briefing, we made the same point last week, but I'll use him in a little comment that he makes this week. So Pergamum, Pergamum is a particularly, um, a, a, a city that's particularly sensitive to Rome's sort of tendency to self-aggrandize. And they are sensitive to going along with it. And, uh, and Al Mohler is forever saying on the briefing, um, when you, wherever you go to certain places, you'll find a, a far higher concentration of allegiance to the direction of American culture as to uh, sexuality and um, political things more broadly and generally and certain ideological identifications, they will, they, they tend to move, he would say, in our culture, they tend to move left the closer you are to a coast, the closer you are to a major city, 
and the closer you are to a campus. Um, those are the places where you'll find the most, the strongest ideological concentration, and you'll find it, you know, quite a bit less so if you're in Douglas, Wyoming, um, or you know, if you are uh, in uh, Chamberlain, South Dakota, or and and you can you can just go down, you can just go down the list uh, that that way. Um, so the author to this letter is warning them uh, that they live in a tremendously dangerous place that has spiritual tendencies built deeply into it. Um, let me just uh, turn with me in your Bible to uh, Hebrews 2, verse 1. Hebrews 2, verse 1. This is, a, this is an extremely insightful little statement and uh, what's sort of really being said, it's a strange, it's a strange combination of words that makes it difficult to translate it in such a way that you will hear it in exactly the same way that his audience would have heard it. Um, so here's how it usually, re- basically how it reads. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to things that we have heard than we usually, unless we drift away from it. But that, that final verb is actually passive. It almost never comes out in the tr- translation. So we need to pay careful attention to what we've heard lest we be carried off. Lest we be carried off by the cultural stream flowing around us. And and if you pay attention at all to how the average American thought about a whole range of things just 40 years ago compared to today, the, ch- the change is massive. And you can really only account for it by the fact that a trend has taken place and has carried most people off with it. Um, so most people, in other words, most people 60 years ago had moral a moral outlook that was much more reflective of biblical ethics than now. Much more. That wasn't because they were so Christian. They weren't. But the cultural flow was consistent with uh, the Western civilization which had been built upon the Bible over the previous thousand years. Um... And that's mostly gone. That's mostly gone. Um, uh, and why? Well, because of a bunch of very, very carefully reasoned arguments. No, 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 no. Not the, people have just been carried off by the mainstream of what they watch on television, what they taught when they go off to college. What they, that, that's, that's the thing. That, that, that's how it works. And he's warning, he said, and so if you're going to survive... 
in such an environment as a Christian, the only way you're ever going to survive is if you pay very close attention to what the word of God actually says. Apart from that, you won't survive. You, you, you will. You will be, as, the, as that final verb says, you will just be carried off. You'll be carried off. We usually translate it as drift. You'll drift. Uh, but, the, but that passive notion is powerful. You will be carried off. Um, so we'll look at this, uh, start verse 12. Uh, we are to note the fresh description of Jesus. So the speaker again is Jesus. The uh, images of Jesus are taken from the vision um, back earlier in chapter 1. And this time, the metaphor is of a sharp, two-edged sword. The angel to the church of Pergamum write. The one who has the sharp, two-edged sword says this. Now, that, that sharp sword, that, that image, is taken from uh, Isaiah 49. Um, so this is where he's getting the image. And he made his mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has concealed me. He has also made me a sharpened arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. Speaking of God, my mouth is like a sharp sword. And his servant is like an arrow in his quiver. Uh, And that fulfilled, of course, ultimately in Jesus. Uh, But the meaning, the sense of that, the sense of what that really is getting at um, might be better reflected in Isaiah 11.4. But with the righteousness, he will judge, but with righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the humble of the earth and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. So the idea of this sharp two-edged sword is, although wickedness may be mainstreamed in Roman Empire culture in many, many different ways, that doesn't mainstream it with the living God. And in fact, the living God still says the same thing, however out of step it may be, with contemporary thinking. Um, I made reference last week to the images in the previous uh, letter that are most alarming, right? Our, Our images like the synagogue of Satan. So, well, who is he referring to as the synagogue of Satan? Well, that would be the Jewish community there um, that is now trying to distance Christians for them to sort of throw them under uh, the Roman bus. 
and uh, and and there's all kinds of people who have left the synagogue community and joined the church. That's where they were witnessed to. And some of them might be quite tempted to go back and to play a little bit more of a mediating role. But in, in, in our postmodern times, you can't use language like the synagogue of Satan. That is absolutely abs- oh, that's abhorrent. That's absolutely abhorrent. But he uses it. He uses it. And, and not so much because he's trying to be provocative as he's being clear. And, um, and, and a few of us visited afterwards about, you know, that, that language. So, you, you know, it's, uh, we face a question like this. So are, you, are we saying, are we saying that a relatively devout, moral Jewish person who simply doesn't accept Christ as their Lord and Savior, are we really saying that they're lost? Is that what we're saying? Um, well, let me give you, let me, let me give you a, 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 a verse that doesn't sound very sword-like on your mouth as you say it, but has massively sword-like implications, right? So, John 14, 6. John 14, 6, where Jesus says of himself, I am the way and the truth and the life. Okay, so far so good. Um, but, but then, no one comes unto the Father but through me. Okay, I mean... But let me tell you what happens if you think about that and apply it with anything like plausibility. Um, I, I was in our, in our conversation, and this and it won't work any better here because I'll just take a survey, and I already know that none of you, because this, this author is not that popular. Maybe you saw this movie. But the... Anybody read any of the um, of the books by the Jewish novelist Kaim Potok? There's got to be a few. Okay. Uh, oh yes. Uh, yeah. Some we read in the book club together. Um, uh, I, uh, my uh, I read my favorite Kaim Potok novel actually in that in that book club. My favorite is my name is Asher. Uh, Lev and I got turned on to uh, Kaim Potok by a friend of mine that used to be the pastor down at Beersford, Tim Trudeau. He not only he not only recommended uh, Kaim Potok to me, but gave me eight hardcover uh, copies of Kaim Potok's books, and then I I read straight through them. And I'll tell you, I really, really like. Kaim Potok. Two of those books were made into movies, um, The Chosen and The Promise. Uh, so The Chosen, actually, Robbie Benson, that was a fairly major Hollywood star at the time, starred in that, and it, it got fair play, and I don't know if any of you saw that. But anyway, so you, so you read all these books by Kaim Potok, and I really, really like Kaim Potok, he's a Reformed Jew. He mostly writes about Orthodox Jews. 
fascinated with them. He's fascinated with that intellectual tradition. He thinks it's one of the greatest intellectual traditions in the world um, and makes a plausible argument that it is and that, um, and that the people at the center of it are, are some of the most gifted intellects anywhere on earth. But when Kaim Potak is asked, is Jesus Israel's Messiah? He's very plain. No. No, he's not. He has many wonderful things to say about Christians. He thinks uh, Christians have been a great blessing to the United States. He thinks that the ethical traditions of Christianity, uh, which have shaped uh, the, the Western world, were just a massive, massive uh, blessing. Uh, though, of course, they're all rooted in, in Judaism, which is his point, and which is true. Um, uh, so, so, but then you just face the question. Because he died a number of years ago. So is Kaim Potok in heaven, or will Kaim Potok experience the second death? And, and this is where we usually say this. Well, you know, I'm no one's judge. I'm no one's judge. Which, if we were just a little bit more honest, what we have to sort of pretend to be saying is this. Well, I have no idea what John 14, 6 means or implies. I mean, it might mean that many people end up on, in God's good graces apart from Christ. It might mean that. It says the opposite, but maybe it means that, because it would sure comfort the socks off me if it did. Um, uh, but, but there's no... There's, there, there's no intellectually honest way to get there. And so actually, you see, John 14, 6 becomes like a double-edged sword if you apply it to anything with honesty. It just does. That's the image. That's the image. These words... There's, there's a reason people hate the Bible, and they do. It's banned, in, it's, it's banned all over the world. There's many countries, if you have one and they know it, they certainly seize it from you, and they might kill you for having it, a few of them, like North Korea. But it is because the implications of those kinds of things are massive. And that's just Jesus. His words are like this Roman sword. And he mentions that because he's now going to apply his words to the church at Pergamum. And through them, he applies his words to us. Now, notice how he describes them. A verse... Um, uh, 13, verse 13. Uh, 
I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold firmly to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Um, so our question is, how is Pergamum, how is Pergamum the throne of Satan? I know where you live. I know where you live. Well, they live in Pergamum. What's going on at Pergamum? Do they worship the devil there? No. No, they worship the Roman emperor there. They don't worship the devil. They worship the Roman emperor. And they worship a number of other pagan gods. There's a, there's a, there's a range of temples there, and they're involved in all of them. Um, and none of them, none of them are temples to Satan. So how is it, how is it that the throne of Satan comes up in John's mind? Well, it's simple, right? For John... Satan's behind all of that. You know. So who comes up with pagan worship? Satan does. Who comes up with political movements? Satan does. Who comes up with atheistic ideology? Satan does. And so he just names it. He names it from his own perspective, right? Now, again, what you see in our own culture is that's more powerful than it looks because if it wasn't so powerful, we wouldn't spend so much cultural time bashing anybody who mentions Satan in any way, shape, and form as a Reuben and idiot. So if you think, if you, if you talk in these terms, you're automatically a Reuben and idiot. The throne throne of Satan, good grief. Haven't you ever watched the church lady? You think it might be Satan, you know, and then you get a big laugh. They're like, oh boy, you know. That works. That works. That was culturally powerful stuff. Or when I was younger, before uh, the, uh, uh, now you'd have to refer to him as the Oprah before Oprah was Phil Donahue. Phil Donahue, who was pushing all the same cultural issues on the, on the cutting edge, and he would always love to, we're all going to hell, aren't we? And the audience would laugh. Yep, nothing more laughable, nothing more, nothing more light and joking than hell. Nobody, nobody with an IQ of over 10 believes in hell. Yep, we're all going to hell. He would say, he would say that two or three times an hour. As he did his his thing, he'd be presenting some sort of cutting edge cultural uh, movement. Much of it, he was on the front lines of uh, promoting the sexual revolution back in the uh, late seventies and early eighties, um, and he was big time in uh, in doing that. And went out of his way, went out of his way. To, uh, to downplay things like Satan, hell, eternal punishment, joke, 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 laugh, 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 silly, silly, silly. But see, all John says is, you know, do you think, do you think it is a coincidence that 
in Pergamum, it is considered politically wise and expedient to just be willing to say, Augustus, Augustus is a god. Okay, and, and he ought to be honored. That's all you got to say. They don't care whether you really believe it in your heart. If you'll just say it out loud, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. And John is saying, do you think it's a coincidence that the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before you? And that the culture comes up with a central thing that goes right to the first commandment and insists that you contradict it. And John's just saying, who would, come, who would do that? Well, Satan might. Uh, Satan might. Uh, it's the throne of Satan. Or as Paul, uh, I love the way, my, my, probably my favorite picture of this in the New Testament even though John has more of the best of them than anybody else, my, my favorite, probably for its insightfulness, is, is Paul in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, Paul writes this, And you, being dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you once walked, according to... The age of this world. In other words, according to the mainstream thinking of Roman Empire culture. And then he renames it. He puts it, this is in apposition. According to the prince of the power of the air. Reference to Satan. The spirit now working in the sons of disobedience, in which we all once lived in the desires of our flesh, doing the will of the flesh and of the mind. Um, do, you see what, do you see the overlap there? The course of this world, oh, which equals, which equals, the course of the prince of the power of the air, the spirit presently working in the sons of disobedience. That's why he says, I know where you live, where the throne of Satan is. Um, last year in a discussion of a pastor's meeting, uh, that 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 we had uh, a guy had shared some uh, um, some struggles that his uh, you know daughter was having in a certain thinking I won't go into exactly what it was doesn't 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 matter that much other than it was certainly you know within the mainstream sort of thinking of what you'd call progressivism cultural Marxism you know my my daughter has these concerns. And and I, and I said to him, well, of course, that's because this that, that's that's cultural Marxism, and its its influence is unbelievably vast. Uh, it's around us all the time, and if you're her age, it's it's she's never been anything but in it. And he said, 
No, it's not that. And I said, you don't even know where you live. (laughs) You don't even know where you live. It couldn't possibly be anything but that. That's where we live. And all kinds of people don't know where they live, which is why he says to them, I know where you live. And I'm telling you where you live. You live where the throne of Satan is. And if you don't think that's where you live, then you're being naive. Because that is where you live. That's what he's telling them. It's, it's not just politics. It's not just this and that and the other thing. Go behind it. Go behind it. Go behind it. Until you'll find it's the throne of Satan. Um, and therefore, um, the Christian church doesn't fit very well. And they've gotten singled out so that among the things, by honoring the empire, they gave... Pergamum, that very few cities had this early. Pergamum had the power of the death penalty. Rome always had the power of the death penalty, but they didn't hand that out necessary to underlings everywhere in in Asia. You had decrees coming down from higher up, which they were willing to give on a regular basis. But in Pergamum, they think, Pergamum was one of the earliest cities in Asia, possibly the earliest, where local people could decide on the death penalty uh, so that a Christian like Antipas um, was given the death penalty for speaking against emperor worship uh, in a culture where everybody knew better than to do that. But he did it, and, and, uh, and John is, is, is lifting him up because of it. Um, um, I, I wrote uh, over on there, the, the other side uh, uh, text there, First uh, John 5, 19 and 20. First John 5, 19 and 20 is another picture of And this one, a sweeping picture. We know that we are from God and the whole world lay in the power of the evil one. Now again, that sounds pretty cynical, right? A little extremist. But it's it's biblical worldview stuff, right? Um, It's not not a sliding scale. There's There's the word of God there's and and then there's paganism of various forms and 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 types including in our in our generation you know very much a secular uh sort of 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 thinking that is you know incredibly uh bent in the direction of 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 atheism and uh and so the whole world but the world see, has an impact on everybody uh, you don't, and in 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 our case, m- more than ever, right? I mean, the uh, you know the advent of these things is just you just can't even imagine. Uh, you can't, you cannot imagine. 
Um, you have, I, don't, I forget what year I got this, but I, I'm sure I don't even remember what it's like not to you know, be able to check the weather you know, when you're on a trail someplace. Oh, yep, there we go. Okay, what's the, what's the weather going to be for the next 10 days? Well, you know, it'll take me 15 seconds to figure out. Oh, and by the way, it'll show me right where I am on the trail um, a, a, as well. And, uh, and give me the elevation that I'm standing at. And, and on and on and on this thing goes. You know, and, and, we, and we say, isn't that neat? Isn't that neat? Isn't that neat? And there's a, there's, there's a thousand neat things, right? And there are. They're really, really, really cool, which is why we all love it so much. And then we ask the question, and does it have any impact on your thinking? Oh, no. Oh, no. No, 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 no. I do. I only impact my thinking when I read the Bible first thing in the morning. Uh, the rest of the day, I'm relatively impact-free uh, from all other things and all other influences. And uh, we're not. And so not surprising, right? They're in the Church of Pergamum. What do they have? All around them, people who have been impacted by the empire. And so verses 14 and 15. Um, here's what it says. I have a few things against you. Because you have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. So you too have some who in the same way hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So what is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the most prominent, possibly the most prominent pagan prophetic voice of the ancient world who shows up in the book of Numbers. Um, and he's being asked to curse the Israelites. Um, now, according to the Pentateuch, according to Moses in the book of Numbers, he, this pagan priest, does have some real connection to the living God. He actually hears from the living God. It's a, it's a, it's a little complicated this way, right? This is a pagan, this is a pagan guy. Um, in ancient literature, he's, he's often referred to as um, a Balaam is the pagan Moses. If you want to have a sense of how prominent he was considered outside of Israel in his day, the only person inside of Israel that you could compare him with is Moses, which is why a pagan king like Balak would seek him out. He goes to the top. He goes to the best. And, um, and he says to Balaam, 
get God to curse Israel for me and I'll make you a bunch of money. And Balaam knows things that are true about God. He knows this about God. Well, you don't really tell him what to do. Um, so when I, if you, if you want me, if you want me to approach, you know, the, the, the living God of Israel, I can only do what he's willing to do. And I can't really get him to do anything that he hasn't already decided he's going to do. So I'm not sure it's worth, no, 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 no. You go do that. Get him to curse Israel. And so, you know, he goes and they go through that sequence, of course, and the Lord refuses to curse Israel. And, um, and in fact, he blesses Israel instead. And Balak is exceedingly disappointed uh, with Balaam. And no matter how much money he offers Balaam, it's the same crummy outcome. So why is Balaam showing up here if he wasn't able to curse Israel? Oh, because he was allowed to ruin Israel anyways. Not by getting God to curse them, but by just the sort of influence that they were prone to fall under. And, and Balaam simply points this out to Balak. Look, Balak, you don't really need, you don't really need God to be cursing these people. They're more than willing to self-destruct with a little help. Um, so why don't you just give them a little help. And so, uh, Numbers 25. Numbers 25, verses 1 to 3. Well, Israel remained at Shedem. The people began to commit infidelity with the daughters of Moab. For they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel became followers of Baal Peor, and the Lord was angry with Israel. Um, just invite them over to your festivals. Just invite those men over to your festivals. Let them know, let them know, you know, the wonderful thing about, Baal, Baal's a fertility cult. The wonderful thing about Baal worship is it often involves sex with prostitutes. I think you guys might like that. Did you come over? Um, uh, let's, uh, let's show you some of the... Uh, the Moabite women uh, that would be at your disposal in a worship service over here. So why don't you think about it? And, and come on over. And, uh, you know, you don't have to give up worship of Yahweh. You can still do that. Uh, you know, when in Rome, be like the Romans. Just kind of 
come on over. And that's what they did. That's what they did. He announces that how successful it was, Moses does, in uh, Numbers 31. Uh, Numbers 31, 16. Now, now we're looking back on this strategy that Balaam gave to Balak. Look, this is all you got to do. This is all you got to do. You don't need any curse from them. Behold, they caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to be unfaithful to the Lord in the matter of Peor so that the plague took place among the congregations of the Lord. Um, say, well, how could they, they couldn't possibly be, they couldn't possibly be that naive. It's been in the, been in the news lately right, right now, right? One of the largest churches in America, North Point, there in suburban Atlanta. What did they just do? Well, they had a, they had a conference to normalize, uh, to normalize the transgender movement for Christians. Um, that the church should be a place where transgender people are mainstream and they're considered as mainstream as anybody else. So the male and female, not so important. Not so important. Well, why would they do that? Well, what do they think of that at ABC News? Tremendously compassionate and wise. What do they think at NPR? Tremendously compassionate and wise. What do they think at CBS? Tremendous compa compassionate and wise. What do they think at the BBC? Tremendously compassionate and wise. What do, what, what do they think in Washington, D.C.? We've been doing that for a long time. It's about time you catch up. If you're going to have any kind of real cultural influence, this is just the only way you're ever going to do it. Or you, 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 You're just out and bigoted. Just out and bigoted. What is that? That's the Council of Balaam. But it, it, that, that's what he's talking about. That's, that's how it works. That's how it works. That's what he's talking about. That's all he did. Israelites in the first, just invite them, invite them to think a little bit more like you and show them the benefits of it. And that's what he did. And away they went. Um, we'll, we'll just quickly go and then we'll open, we'll give you a chance to uh, ask questions or give uh, uh, feedback. But we'll just touch on these last two things, verse 16 and 17, very quickly. So uh, verse uh, 16, verse 16, Therefore repent, for I am coming to you quickly. And I will wage against you with the sword of my mouth. Now notice, all that is, is I will, I will come back and say what I already said before. Right? I will just come and re-say the word of God, which will be found 
condemning your present practice if you don't, con- if you don't repent. So repent, or I will return, and I will repeat the word of the double-edged sword to you. So get back in line with that word before the word lands on you from a different angle. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. So repent. Put yourself back in line with the word of God. Um, And everybody who has ears to hear, let let them hear. Let them actually listen to that word. And then verse 17, we are to note the call to perseverance, and that's uh, found really, really marvelously expressed in the, uh, in the 17th uh, verse there. This is one of those places where uh, just the, the, the little grammatical point um, is, is worth noting. Uh, it opens with a little phrase opens with a present participle to the one conquering to the one conquering conquering what conquering Balaamism conquering the Roman Empire at Pergamum to the one who is in the process of conquering how do they how, well how, how are they conquering They are simply holding fast to the word of God, to the divine perspective. That's all they're doing. They're not winning the culture for Jesus. That's not how they're conquering. They're not, they're doing doing nothing but holding fast to the word of God as a church and thereby they are still acting like a lamp in the world. They don't look like every other light. They look like a lamp in the world. Um, and then he, then he gives us the series of images, which all, I think, refer to so the, the hidden manna, uh, you know, there's, man, there's manna in the Ark of the Covenant. And so the hidden manna would be the manna that, that was placed in the Ark of the Covenant. It's a way of saying, you, these are the, uh, he'll, he'll make you the real covenant people of God. The white stone's likely simply the stone of acquittal in judgment over against the black stone, which would be judgment. And then your name is written on the stone. Your name is written on the stone, I, and I, I just wrote out here um, uh, the text of, uh, I, didn't, I mean, I wrote the reference, John 1, 12 and 13. So as many as received him, to them he gave the right to be, what name? The children of God. The children of God. Nobody else, nobody understands that name except the one who has it, right? Nobody else sees what a wonderful thing it is. If somebody comes here on a Sunday when we sing what a song that I really like that 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 we sing, you know, it has a little refrain in it, I am a child of God. I am a child of God. I am a child of God. What a name. Like like wow. 
What a name. Now, some of you from the outside here, I am a child of God. It's like, oh, well, what, what is that? Well, that's just religious language. You know, they, who knows? You know, they sing at church. Well, but, but in that case, right, the, the, the lyric in the song is expressing something that is taught in the word of God. It's literally true of people. They have become the children of God. They have this family-like eternal relationship with the living God, and that is who they are. Now, everybody would sign up if they actually believe that. But they don't believe it. They don't understand it. They don't, no, no, no. They're evangelicals. Which means they vote for Trump too much, which means they're really dumb. Um, I mean, that's just who they are. So, uh, that, you know, that, that's just who they are. They tend to vote Republican. Just look at what's been going on. Uh, I'm starting to wonder, you know, can you be a Republican without being really dumb? Just watching our house, I, I don't know. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure. It, lo it looks like a case could be made, you know. Uh, not a lot of bright bulbs there, um, you know, um, on the... On the thing, but no, we don't, there's nothing to do with that. That's not who we are. Child of God. And all of those other things are simply a little offshoot related to what is or isn't there. But the fundamental thing is the connection with the Word of God. Questions or comments as we. Just about out of time, but we got a few minutes. Anybody? Well, all right, we're wrapping up um, 90 seconds early. Um, so uh, that's the kind of thing I can pull off now and again. <laughs> In case you doubted it. <laughs>